You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Wealth Tech on Deck. Of the more than 100 guests we've had on our podcast, one of our most popular is Chip Rome. Chip is the founder and managing partner of both the Tiburon Strategic Advisors business as well as the Tiburon CEO Summits. The Tiburon CEO Summits uh, take place twice a year, and it's a who's who of financial services senior executives and fintech leaders who are driving our industry forward. This fall's Tiburon CEO Summit took place uh, recently in San Francisco, November 6th through 8th. It was another capacity crowd of 345 C-suite level execs, including my life field colleagues. Unfortunately, I had missed this year's program due to a family commitment. In addition to Tiburon, Chip uh, sits on many wealth and asset management, annuity and fintech boards, and has a good, as good a vantage point as anyone I know in our industry about where we're all headed. So Chip, welcome back to Wealth Tech on Deck. Great to have you on board. Thanks, Jack. Glad to be back. So Chip, uh, your State of the Industry Address is always my favorite. I heard through the grapevine, it was another highlight of the conference at the Tiburon CEO Summit. What are some of the key themes you're, you've highlighted uh, for the over the past year? Yep, sure, Jack. Uh, so last week at Tiburon, I uh, really talked about evolution of the wealth and investment management industry, and I had five key themes. So I'll just get them all out there. Sure. We talked about how clients are evolving, you know, the clients we're serving are evolving, how the products and services are evolving, how the markets and distribution channels are evolving, how the tactics, specifically marketing and technology, and then how the industry structure, meaning M&A, venture capital, M&A, and IPOs is evolving. So the theme was evolution and kind of five areas of evolution. So why don't we dig into some of those? What were some of the favorite themes? I know I'm always interested in hearing about our friends at Fidelity Schwab, Morgan Stanley, and Vanguard, but uh, let's talk a little bit about what those themes mean and how that plays out in terms of uh, business growth. That's what we're all we're all about, right? Yep. So specifically, that one would have fit in my third theme about markets and distribution channels. Kind of a couple of big picture ahas or factoids for you. So the wealth industry grew only 2.4% organically last year, 2.4%, so fairly de minimis growth. That four big players last year dominated share. That'd be Fidelity, Schwab, Morgan Stanley, and Vanguard in that order. Hundreds of billions of flows for all those firms. Continuum movement of advisors, but relatively small, trickled to the independent channels. And in dollars and cents, the fastest growing channel last year was actually the discount brokerage firms, the retail arm of the discount brokerage firms. So some of those would have been the factoids in that market and distribution channel evolution theme. So those dominant players, those have been in place for a while and maybe it changes this year because the markets have been more challenging and, and so on. Love you comment on all that. But what is it that has them be so strong? We, I think I know maybe collectively and then maybe individually. And then we'll ask a follow-up question on what are others try to do to unseat them. Yeah. So I, I think if you think about Schwab and Fidelity and even to some degree Vanguard are relatively similar firms, right? They all play substantially in the self-serve or discount brokerage channel. They all substantially support registered investment advisors or independent advisors, They all have big workplace businesses, so they have some of those things in common. Morgan Stanley's a bit the otter duck in that group of four there, so you you might say, well, geez, Morgan Stanley's a warehouse, and they have full-service brokers, and they charge commissions, and a bunch of kind of bygone era views of who they are. But if you really think about who Morgan Stanley is today, 
They have a big retail business. It's E-Trade to some degree. It's the same as Schwab and Fidelity. They have Morgan Stanley advisors that are substantially fee-based. They look a lot like the RIA, Schwab and Fidelity support. They have a big workplace business. They bought ShareWorks. So they look a lot like Fidelity or Schwab in the workplace business. So, so what do they have in common? They, they kind of all have a, a discount, a retail brokerage business. They all have a workplace-oriented business. They all support fee-based investing. You know, they have a lot of things, frankly, in common. They might have come from different places. Vanguard, Fidelity came from the mutual fund world. Schwab came from the discount brokerage world. Morgan Stanley came from the wirehouse world. But I think they're kind of all coalescing around discount brokerage, serving fee-based advisor people, and having big workplace businesses. Yep. Your prediction, does that continue? And what about others that are trying to catch up to them? What does that all look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, if you go down the flow, so remove your opinion from the equation, just look at the flows. Very few firms are close to them in flows. You know, and Ed Jones is within reason close and LPL is within reason close. But, you know, you talk about, I might get this slightly wrong, but Fidelity flows last year. Fidelity was number one. Fidelity is about $525 billion of net new money, not organic, not market growth, but net new money, 500 and something. Schwab was just right behind them. And, you know, uh, Morgan Stanley's three or 400 billion, Vanguard's a couple hundred billion. And then you're down to about 100 billion. And good firms, good firms, Ed Jones, LPL, around 100. And then you're down to the tens of billions of dollars. So what are the other players doing? Well, they're way behind right now, way, way, way behind. And I think they uh, might have to do a gulp and go, how do we catch up there? So do I think anyone displaces any of those four when we look at the data for 2023? No, I don't. My guess is those same four are up at the top again. Yeah, it sure seems like they... Fidelity is just a machine. If you think rollover, if you're a consumer, you, you that's where you send your money is Fidelity. It just seems to be sort of a, as a matter of course. Schwab, I was just sort of seeing some new ads they put out. They're sort of interesting how they're positioning themselves. And, and I think it's uh, very consumer oriented. And Morgan Stanley, of course, we've talked about this story and some near and dear to my heart. They're just being smart on all fronts. They've acquired, they've they've integrated it all with a lot more to go as all these firms do. And then, of course, Vanguard is the low-cost low provider, at least that, the brand around that, and seem to be adding services as they go. The, the rest seem to be missing pieces. They seem to not have as comprehensive a strategy. So be interested to see how they, they try to catch up. Certainly, Edward Jones is spending a whole lot of money to try to, to do that. They're very mission-driven. So any thoughts and comments? If I were to pick one, I'm, I'm picking on Edward Jones. They seem to be in a in a position, possibly if they can pull it all together. But your thoughts on maybe some people that some firms that might start to catch up in, in any along the way here? If I was a betting man, I would bet on LPL, Ed Jones, and Ray J, Raymond James. So as three others yeah. that appear to have the right components of strategy. But if you step back and think about not the past, but the future, right? And so like take the three themes I just referred to. It's workplace, retail, and RIAs, right? So think about workplace. Fidelity has something like 41 million plan participants in a Fidelity plan today, right? Guess what? They're going to keep growing for a long time because some of those people retire every year, right? I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful thing. You know, Morgan Stanley did um, the acquisition of ShareWorks and is in the stock option business. They have six or seven million people. You think some of those people will cash in their stock options. So they'll continue to grow in the workplace business. Or Schwab and Fidelity both have big discount brokerage arms. Vanguard effectively has a big discount brokerage arm serving Bogleheads, right? Morgan Stanley acquired E-Trade. So they own that retail. Discount brokerage thing. 
And then the RIA growth, right? You know, Schwab and Fidelity are the two biggest custodians there. Vanguard sells the most funds to the RIAs. So if you think about those three trends, workplace, retail, and RIAs, yeah. it just seems like those four firms, they're positioned right right now, Jack, for the future. It's easy to say they did well in the past, but actually, I don't see anyone else who is in the right spot for those three trends going forward. So, yeah. so if I had to be a betting man, I would I would drag LPL, Ed Jones, and Ray J into the equation, but I kind of like the big four that are already there. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think I do. So what about some of the other trends? What are some of the other things that have you excited that uh, you like to think about, talk about, where you, where you see the world going? I think um, product data is uh, is probably the misquoted data in the whole industry, right? So you see a lot of, uh, and maybe it's because people, it's salesy, kind of people push things, right? So sustainable investing funds are ESG funds. Horrible flows, very, very small flows. Everyone, big trend, everyone's all excited about it, but flows are really, really small, right? Yep. Or crypto, you know, up and down and up and down. We're probably going to have some spot Bitcoin ETFs right now, but only about 4% of crypto assets are in a managed account, 4%, not 40 or anything like that, you know? Or um, what else is in this category of interesting? Alts are booming, you know, but they're up to about 13% of assets in the wealth channel, about 52% of the assets in the pension channel, 13% of the assets in the wealth channel. Director personalized indexing, you know, oh, it's a hot dot. Everyone's excited about it. Flows last year, a little under 100 billion. ETF flows are over 600 billion, right? So yeah. I, don't know, I just I think product data gets a little, you know, maybe it's not even data. Maybe they don't quote the data. They just, they give you qualitative opinions on what's happening as opposed to what the data says is happening. So I like to be the the myth debunker there on the product data. So yeah, it's, it's of course, everywhere you turn, it's direct indexing, custom indexing, call it what you will, but it's basically, it's a Everything you just described is a single product, and you've heard me talk about this ad nauseum, but it, I think it also happens to be true, is the move seems toward more of a comprehensive kind of approach, a coordinated pro-solutions approach. Comment on that, if you would. Where do you see that all headed? Yeah, certainly it's the coordinated approach. And I think uh, whether it's, uh, you know, what used to be retirement planning as boomers age is now retirement income plan. It's the other kind, the other side of the hill kind of going on right now. So sure. yeah, I think you're going to see things like, I think you're going to see advisors because they want to defend their 1% fee. They're going to get more involved in cash management, in lending, helping their clients refinance mortgages, in things like tax planning and tax prep estate planning, charitable giving. I think you're going to see advisors have a major service expansion to effectively fight off pricing pressure. So I think the big aha is we're really going to see, truly going to see uh, financial advisors or wealth managers or whatever you want to call them, truly people that honestly, let's be clear, they were investment advisors. That's what they were. Yes. They were very narrowly investment advisors becoming something much more broadly, which frankly is good for clients, good for customers at the end of the day. So talk a little bit more, if you would, about that solutions orientation. How does that play out? Because an important part of this whole equation, we talked about the distributors, namely the big four we talked about with Fidelity, Schwab, Morgan Stanley, and Vanguard. But what about the asset managers? They seem to be working, as they always have, working with the larger firms, certainly, to develop product that are more solution-oriented, more packaged, putting it together, trying to help the advisor incorporate that into a more comprehensive approach. Do you have any thoughts on that, on that that sort of trend line of solution versus just product of the month? Yeah, I would tell you, 
I think the phrase solutions is overplayed. <laughs> I think this is underperforming uh, investment products that they're now solutions providers. You know? <laughs> That's kind of a, you know, whatever. So you should have been providing <laughs> solutions a long time ago, right? You know, a target date mutual fund or something is a true solution. I get it, right? It's a practical product that I understand as a consumer that I could, I they generally don't, by the way, but consumers could put all their money in the fund with their retirement year on it and live happily ever after. That's the theory. That's generally not what the consumers do. We should be clear about that, right? They generally bastardize their portfolio, owning a whole bunch of other stuff that really destroys the whole point of the solution. But, yeah. you know, so be it, you know. But I think if you step back and forget about the buzzword of solutions for a second and think about the cool uh, product companies that are emerging, generally not the investment management firms, by the way, but more like the supermarket kind of companies like Flourish is a company that does cash management. You know, so give me your emergency fund. I'll divvy it out to some banks and get you a higher interest rate. Or Sora Finance, you know, like give me all your clients' mortgage data and I'll tell you which ones you can refinance at any given time. Uh-huh. Or DPL, a supermarket of no-load annuities. Or sure. ELO, you know, bringing transparency to structured products or whatever. I just think all of these things are very, they're kind of very Schwab-esque, if that makes sense. Like yeah. if you remember when Schwab creates the mutual fund supermarket and before that, you know, you mail your money off to Janus and then they underperform. So you, you get your money back and you mail it off to Fidelity and then you get your money back and you mail it off to American Century. That idea of a mutual fund supermarket was a big aha. And now we're going to have a cash supermarket and a lending supermarket and a no-load annuity supermarket. And, uh, you know, fill in the blank. You're going to have an estate planning supermarket someday and a charitable giving product supermarket. Like, these are good for customers. The rest of the world works this way, right? You go on Netflix, you have a choice of 10 trillion movies, right? You go to one place and you pick from the 10 trillion movies, right? And I think all these other industries are being invented in the supermarket vein, which is super cool to see. And how does this all come together? I mean, one of the things that we follow and we participate in as a business, Lifefield that is, is how you bring it together on a platform. And what's your view on this whole platformization, as I sometimes call it, where firms like Edward Jones is a good example. They're, they've installed planning. They've installed CRM. They're looking at advisory in terms of oversight of advisory across the board. They're looking at retirement income as a solution, a more comprehensive, not as individual annuities or yield producing funds or whatever they might there might be, but more of a, a solution and not in the in the way that frankly we were talking about earlier, which is more of a kind of a hyped up version of a product, but rather a true solution in terms of how you package all this stuff together. What's your view on that? How do you see that playing out? It's complicated stuff, it's expensive, it takes forever. But your thoughts on that that you know that's what Morgan Stanley has done effectively by putting together all they've put together in trying to catch up to the other big players. Yeah. So I guess I have I have four different thoughts about platforms. One is that historically the proprietary big firm platforms are better than the third party platforms. And I think that has reversed itself, right? So I now think the invest nets and invest clouds and asset marks and others have great platforms. So I think one is the fact that the wires had the better technology is no longer true. That's one. Number two, I think uh, the single point solutions keep getting snapped up. So if you build a great financial planning product, eMoney or Money Guide Pro or whomever, you get bought. So Orion buys you, Fidelity buys you, whatever. So if you're a good single point solution or CRM, Red Tail gets snapped up, right? Yep. Good single point solutions get snapped up by the platforms. Hence, the third party platforms get better and better and better because they snap up the best single point solutions. 
But then at the end of the day, I'm starting to actually see the inverse trend emerging now, which is the independent advisors are getting so big. So like you take up Edelman Financial Engines with hundreds of billions or Cap Trust, hundreds of billions. And all of a sudden, they don't like the platform the way the platform was assembled, right? They want to use part of the platform and they're going back the other way and building some proprietary technology. So it's kind of super interesting to watch. We came from the land of proprietary technology. The third party got better, bought up all the single point solutions. But then when you try to sell the bundled platform to a big player, they like 75% of it, but they don't like it all. So they start building proprietary technology again. My God, I feel like I'm in a circle right now, you know? And so the circle will continue is my guess. Gotcha. What else? What are are the things that are catching your eye in terms of what you're seeing now and what you see going forward? I think industry structure is changing a lot. So when we say industry structure, that's our phrase for where are the venture capitalists looking? Where is the M&A activity happening? And is anyone going public, right? Mm -hmm. We think about what investment management firms, we think about wealth management firms, we think about wealth tech firms, right? So those three subcategories, right? So in the venture world, the money's flowing to the wealth tech firms, right? So still raising good money, especially the B2B portion, meaning- Give me an example, just so we know when you say wealth tech, give me some examples. Uh, Plaid, a firm like Plaid, or, or or some of the names I just said, eMoney or Money Guide Pro, they're, not, they're no longer raising capital, but, but firms like that. Firms that serve advisors, tech for advisors, wealth tech for advisors, right? That's where the money is flowing. And it was flowing to the B2C players, so the direct-to-consumer, or the Robin Hood or whoever, and now the money's flowing to the, the firm building tech for advisors. So shifted from B to C to B, B to B in wealth tech. On the M&A side, there's activity everywhere. So there's, uh, you know, last year there were about 850 independent advisor M&A transactions, so a lot in the RIA space. There's about 30 or 40 brokerage firm transactions. So Cetera buys Avantax or someone like that. So broker-dealer M&A. You're seeing investment manager M&A, like the long-only managers, Franklin Templeton buying Leg Mason, that kind of stuff. You're seeing the long-only managers buy the alts managers. That's a big popular topic. And then you're certainly seeing, as I said earlier, the wealth tech firms buying up the single-point solutions. So lots of M&A, Jack. But then when you get to the IPO land, the market's super quiet right now. Right. Even the broader IPO market above wealth and investment management, the entire market is pretty soft. But you're looking at the IPO market and you're saying, well, there's probably no investment management firms going public anytime soon. They're, they're not in the right spot right now. Are there any wealth tech firms going? You know, not that I can name, you know, maybe an Apex, maybe an Invest Cloud, maybe someone like that. And then in the wealth management world, maybe an Edelman Financial Engines, maybe a Cap Trust, maybe a Mercer or Mariner or someone like that. But the IPO market's pretty soft and the private equity market is super rich right now. So they're paying up to buy these properties. So, you know, why are you going public if you can get a 20x multiple in the private market? So so long-winded story, the industry structure is changing a lot. The VCs are back in the B2B tech. The M&A is happening everywhere. The IPO market's pretty soft because the private equity players are keeping it soft. Gotcha. So what else, Chip? What else uh, haven't we covered that you want to share with our audience in terms of what you're excited about or interested in? Last week, we, we talked about clients. I always think clients are interesting. People have, they get their data wrong on clients. So I think it's important to understand, you know, factoids to think about. Next 20 years, the Gen X generation is the ones who save and invest the most money. They get most of the baby boomer wealth transfer. So, you know, Gen X is the market for the next 20 years. 
The mass affluent market last year passed the high net worth market as the largest dollar market in the U.S. So mass affluent is more important now, especially as you come down to the Gen X and the millennials. The money is more spread out, Jack, is the way to think about it. Unlike in the boomer or even the silent generation, the money is much more concentrated, right? So American population is spreading its money out, which is probably a good thing if you're trying to serve more clients, uh, maybe a bad thing if you're trying to serve a smaller number of uber wealthy clients. So paying attention to the Gen X, paying attention to the mass affluent, a lot more women investors, a lot more minority investors in those next generations. Gotcha. Before we close out, anything else we haven't touched on? You want to make sure that you uh, get in here. This has all been fascinating. The only one we didn't touch is tactical land. I think uh, we did talk a little about technology. I think marketing super interesting right now because we've seen a wholesale shift to digital marketing. You know, effectively, everyone's a digital marketer, whether you're uh, doing a, a webcast or doing uh, buying digital ads or whatever it is, you know, buying paid lead gen from Zoe Financial or Smart Asset or whatever. The old ways of marketing of getting referrals from the CPA or joining the Kiwanis Club or whatever people did in the old days, all that seems to have died off. And digital marketing or technology-driven marketing is kind of here to stay. So that's probably the one we didn't cover. And anyone that stands out in that regard that is pretty good at what you're talking about? I think there's some firms that are really, really good at it. And I think these are the firms that focus on it and build departments. Like I listen, Jack, like taking one example, I listen to a lot of advisors say that paid lead gen doesn't work, right? Oh my God, I, I pay smart asset for leads or Nerd Wallet or Zoe Financial or someone that doesn't work. And then you hear a, a firm that is much bigger, much more successful, who says it works wonderfully. And I think it's all about the process you build to receive those leads. So it isn't whether it works or doesn't work, it's about whether you build a system to follow up those leads. So I'm a big believer in digital marketing, but I, I don't think it's as simple as, hey, I paid for some leads. I called them back two weeks after I got the lead. Why didn't the guy uh, use me? Well, because the other two people called him within 15 minutes and have already had three meetings with them by then. So I just think that the new world is more competitive probably, but I think the digital world is a lot more economic. Tax are going to come way down. The cost to acquire clients should come way down for the uh, successful firms. Chip, this has been fun. I really, really enjoyed the conversation as always. I feel like I got a, at least a sense of what went on at Tiburon this time around. So uh, thank you for that. Anything you want to leave our audience with in terms of key takeaways? Any key takeaways you'd like to, to share with our, with our folks on the other end? I would just go back to, you know, again, no matter what anyone tells you, growth in the wealth industry was 2.4% last year. That's organic growth. Four firms, we said their names earlier, have all the growth. What those four firms have in common, they have a retail discount brokerage arm, they support the RIAs or fee-based advisors in some way, and they have a workplace business in some way. That's my takeaway. You know, four big firms growing way more than everyone else, and they have those three things in common. I'm with you all the way. Well, Chip, as always, this has been a blast to get caught up and get your perspective. Uh, it's incisive and insightful as always. Our favorite question at the end of all of our podcasts is to find out what you do outside of work. And I know you are a globe trotter. You are all over the place and you do all sorts of interesting work with uh, the Tiburon folks that uh, attend the conference. What are you up to lately? What have you been doing that's uh, fun, something you're passionate about, excited about, especially right now? Yeah, you know, on the last two podcasts I did with you, Jack, I think I first talked about we do the Tiburon Impact Adventures where we build homes for poor people in Mexico. All your listeners are welcome to participate. We do that at the end of March every year. I think, secondly, I talked about 
I lead the Skip and Chip Excellent Adventures, which is kind of a hiking outdoorsy group with my buddy Skip Schweiss from Sierra. All your listeners are welcome to do that. That's the first week of August. Um, so I'm still big on both of those. No, no, uh, no lesser excited about those today. But I also live overseas every year, and I am three weeks from moving down to Australia for the winter as we record here. So we're going to spend our three-month winter in the summer of Australia this year. So tell me about that. I know last year I was in communication with you a bit while you were way far away. I think it was in Australia or New Zealand or somewhere over there. Tell me about that. Is that just a change of scenery, just to live a different lifestyle or what's going on? Aside from, uh, you know, the CEO of Airbnb, I think I had the idea of living abroad a long time ago. And so every winter for uh, 10 weeks, meaning two and a half months, generally somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere and every summer, generally somewhere in Europe. So five months abroad every year, just trying to see the world. And I, Jack, I generally do my same job, um, minus a little time zone funkiness, but uh, do my same job, just try to you know see a place and see it well and find my local coffee shop and get to know the barista and you know find a pub I can sit at and have a beer and work on my laptop and you know just try to live there and enjoy it. So I love that. Not traveling, not vacationing, but really living there is kind of the objective. Yeah, 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 totally. I, think I may have to try that. I've, I've threatened it, but I think we're... Anyway, I have some thoughts about that coming up sooner than later. We'll see. There you go. Chip, this has been uh, great as always. Thanks for your sharing your perspective. For our, our audience, if you've uh, enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Chip, again, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. A lot of fun as always. Thanks, Jack. Glad to be with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.